I don't know about you, but I feel like Sarah just gave us a sermon and a half. Um, Last night after we finished that song, someone just shouted out, good luck to me. (laughs) Like, good luck following that up. I was like, thanks, Bob. His name is Bob. Um, It is good to be with you all today. Uh, My name is Paul Joslin. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and I'm excited to continue our series in Genesis this morning. Uh, And as we begin, I have a question for you. Uh, And the question is this. How do you know God's will for your life? I mean, in many ways, I feel like that is the question that many of us wrestle with. What is God's will for my life? And have you ever had one of those moments in your life where you feel like there's some sort of of feeling, some sort of prompting that, that kind of is external, that God is maybe leading you in a particular direction, showing you, revealing to you there's somewhere you're supposed to go that is according to his will? The only challenge is, is you have no idea about the details about how to get there. I I like to think of it of a similar situation when every time I go to Trader Joe's and I go to the frozen food section, I know deep down within me that I'm supposed to be there, but I don't know what I'm going to get yet. I just know that I need to be. Anybody else do that at Trader Joe's? Okay, a couple. Thank you. I mean, their food is so good, but that's not the point. There are these moments in life where we feel like we have this prompting, this leading from God where we were given a direction, but none of the details about how that will come to be. And I remember there's only a few times in my life where I can definitively say, I feel like God is leading me towards something, and I don't know the details, but I feel like he's given me a direction. And one of those times was uh, shortly after my wife and I got married. Steffi and I, we got married fairly young. We were in our early 20s, and we felt this prompting, this leading, this calling to leave Dallas and to move to Denver. And now most of you that hear that are like, yeah, of course. <laughs> of course that's God's will. Who would want to stay in Dallas? Like, go to the promised land, of course. We felt this prompting, this leading, and and the difficulty was that all of the details didn't make any sense. In fact, to leave, uh, we'd have to leave all of our family who lived there at the time. We would be stepping out to a place where we didn't really know anyone at all. We'd be stepping into a situation where I was actually saying goodbye and and turning down a really good job that would set us up with a lot of safety and security. And to turn that job down, I was stepping into a space where we had no job, no place to live. And every time we thought God was opening doors for us to, to get a job, it would close and someone else would get it. Or if we felt like God was leading us and, oh, this is gonna be the place that we'll live, we would lose out on the home. And so it felt like Situation after situation, God was closing doors, and yet we still felt this like prompting, this leading, and despite uh, many people in our lives saying what you guys are thinking of doing makes no sense, like any impulsive 22-year-old, we packed up my little Kia Rio, that's what I was driving at the time, really small car with as much stuff as we could fit into it, and we moved to Denver. No job, no place to live. We, we just stayed in someone's basement. And our plan was for three to four weeks, we'll just kind of see what happens. So we'll apply for jobs. We'll try to find a place to live. And if God opens those doors, we'll stay. And if they close, then after a month, we'll move back to Dallas and try to figure things out there. Which, let's just all admit, that's every father-in-law's dream plan for his daughter, right? It's like, okay, we'll just figure it out, and then, and then we'll be good, right? Like, no dad is like, that's who I want my son to marry. He's a keeper. But that was what we did. So we moved out here because we felt this prompting, this leading, this calling that we couldn't really explain, didn't make a lot of sense, but we felt like it was God's will for our lives. 
And I don't know if you've been in those situations where you're trying to discern God's will about the big decisions in life, where you should live or what career path you should take or what job you should take, who you should marry, when you should have kids. All of these big decisions that you're trying to discern and figure out what God's will might potentially be for your life, but the details just don't seem to add up and you can't make sense of what God is calling you to. And for some of us, I think we, we actually don't struggle with the big de- decisions. It's actually in the, the details of everyday life where it complicates a little more what it means to live according to God's will. When it comes to, to issues of morality and ethics, we struggle and wrestle with, okay, if this is what God says is right, and this is what culture says is right, and those two things, if I live according to God's will in this space, what will it cost me? At my job, or at my school, or at my place uh, where I interact with my neighbors? And so living according to God's will around ethics and morality feels complicated and confusing. What is God's will in those spaces? And I think for some of us, it becomes even more blurry because we step into situations where it feels like there's actually confusion about what God has said is right or wrong. And there's places where it feels like the church has just adopted cultural norms and said, I think that's what God says. And, And there's a lot of confusion about what God's will is versus what is just cultural and in the moment. And we can live in this space of tension, wondering, how do I know what God's will is for my life? Whether it's big decisions or or the day-to-day ethics that we live in, it can be hard to discern what God's will is for our lives and how we live faithfully according to that will. Thankfully, the book of Genesis, at its core, the theme that runs throughout this book is a story after story after story of people trying to live according to God's will. And thankfully for us, on this side of those stories, it's story after story after story of how people fail to live according to God's will again and again and again. So that way we don't feel quite as bad about our own lives and can feel a little bit more like, okay, if they did it, then I'm not such a schmuck that I keep screwing everything up. And what you've got to realize is as we get into the book of Genesis, we're going to start this morning. And last week, Larry talked about creation and God creating the heavens and the earth and setting everything into existence, speaking things into existence, showing his power, his might, his creativity, and also creating humankind and giving them everything that they could need. We're going to skip several thousand years ahead of that story in about five minutes. So I just need you to bear with me for about five minutes. It really will be about five minutes. And you also need to know the benefit is we're going to skip to Genesis chapter 12 today, but you're not going to have to read any of the genealogies. So you're welcome for that, okay? We're just going to skip through all of those and just hit the high points of the story that deal with God's will. Because at its core, God creates everything. And then we have the next story of Adam and Eve. And they're given this garden, this paradise where they can live with God. And God reveals his will and says, there's one thing you cannot do. You cannot eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they go against his will. And they rebel and they try to get the paradise of God and and the knowledge of God apart from God. And so the fall takes place and they're, they're pushed out of the garden and because they have rejected and rebelled against God's will, things begin to fall apart and to deteriorate and to come undone. God's created order is broken. And then we see that this, this disorder begins to spread in their sons. And so we have the story of, of Cain and Abel. 
And the story of Cain and Abel is that, that God comes to Cain, who's jealous of his brother, reveals his will, and says, do not harm your brother. Do not mistreat him. Do not commit violence against him. And Cain ignores God's will and takes his brother's life. And time out just for a moment, because this is the part of Genesis that I think we all, like, I remember reading about this story, learning about this story in Sunday school when I was like four or five years old. There's like an image in my brain, a cartoon image burned into my brain of Cain taking a rock to hit his brother on the head. I don't know why we tell this story to kids. This is like HBO Max stuff, and we're just like, yeah, that's fine, they'll figure it out. But anyways, I digress. So Cain this evil spreads, he takes his brother's life, he, and things begin to deteriorate further and further. And what we're told, the next main story of Genesis, is that this evil, this brokenness has spread over all of creation, all of humanity, and things are so far gone that God's only option, people are rebelling against his will so firmly and, and so um, and fervently that God has to reset everything and reset the cosmos. If there are any millennials in the room, you remember when you used to play Nintendo 64 and you'd have to take the cartridge out because it was like glitching and you'd blow on it and put it back in and reset the game. That's the flood. God is resetting the world in this moment because things are so far gone from his will that he has revealed to people. And then we see the next story, the Tower of Babel, where the people in the world try to recreate and reenact the fall of Adam and Eve. And they try to gain access to God. They try to become like God, like Adam and Eve did, but through their own means, apart from God, just like Adam and Eve. And so they build this tower up to the heavens. And it's hilarious in Genesis. They're building this tower up to the heavens, and God has to come down to see them, even though they're trying to get to God. And because of their rebellion, God scatters their languages and, and sends them to the corners of the earth. And what you have to realize is that as Genesis 11 closes and as Abraham comes onto the scene, who's who we are going to be talking about today, the world is a mess. It is so distorted and so far gone from what God originally intended because people continually fail again and again and again, to live according to God's will. And the question that Genesis asks at this moment is, what will God do next? Because things keep unraveling. And so enter Abraham. And God comes to Abraham and he says, I want you to leave your home country. I want you to leave your family. And I want you to go to the land that I've promised you. And I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars, innumerable, you won't be able to count them. And so God comes to Abraham with a promise of what his future will look like, but none of the details. And so Abraham, in faith, leaves his home, leaves his family, and goes to the place that God has called him to. And what we see in the next few chapters of Abraham's life is that there's story after story of God showing back up in Abraham's life and re-promising um, those two promises. He says, you will have descendants as numerous as the stars, you will have a people, and you will also have a land for your descendants to dwell in. But no detail is given about how that will come to pass. And so Abraham receives these promises, and there's promises, 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 but nothing changes, nothing is delivered, and nothing in his life begins to look like the promises God has revealed. And if you've ever been in that moment, the, the tension that you live in when God has revealed something that it feels like this prompting he's calling you to. 
And yet none of the detail about how that will come to pass is, is evident to you. You live in the tension of wrestling, what is God's sovereignty? Where will God show up and where will he act? And what am I responsible for? What do I have to take matters into my own hands? What action do I need to take? I really want that job and it feels like God is leading me towards that. Do I send a resume out or will he just drop it in my lap? And we live in this tension between God's sovereignty and what we should do. And I think most of the time our fear is that if we take action, we might get in the way of God's plan for us. And so we sit and we wait and we wonder what God is doing and what his will for our lives is. And that's the moment that we find Sarah and Abraham in, in Genesis 16. This is what it says to start off this story. Now Sarai, Abram's wife. Now just so you know, so we're all clear, Sarai eventually becomes Sarah and Abram eventually becomes Abram. I'm going to refer to them as Sarah and Abraham throughout this message. If that confuses you, just know they're the same person and, and they eventually change their names. God changes their names, but there's going to be some mixing back and forth about their names. So now Sarah and Abram's wife had borne him no children, and that's the issue. As God has promised Abraham descendants in too innumerable to count, that, that there will be countless descendants, and yet they can't even have one child together. How will God's promise come true. But she, Sarah, had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. And so she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarah said. And so after Abram had began living in Canaan 10 years, so this is 10 years after God has made him the promises and nothing has changed. Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. And he slept with Hagar, and she conceived. The plan works. She conceives. And I, we have to, to sit and pause for a moment, because when we read this story through our modern eyes, this idea of a woman taking her slave, giving it to a husband, him having, sleeping with her, and then her conceiving, it sounds very grotesque to our modern ears. It sounds a lot like abuse. It sounds a lot like trafficking. It sounds a lot like power dynamics. And this woman has no agency, and, and she's being forced into this situation. In an ancient culture, this is actually a very different thing than anything we would have going on in our world today. You see, Sarah, Abraham's wife, is morally obligated according to cultural customs at the time. We have extra biblical accounts, stories outside of scripture, laws from outside of scripture that say if a woman could not conceive and give her husband a child, she was morally responsible to find a solution. And so oftentimes that involved finding her husband a second wife. This isn't a, a, a woman who is being sold into sex slavery. This isn't a concubine. This is a woman who's being elevated from slavery to the position of wife of Abraham. It, it's a chance for her to gain more security in an ancient, dangerous world. And, and so it's not the power dynamics that we maybe see through our modern lens. But... The author does clue us in that things are not going right when Sarah and Abraham do this, that there's something they are doing that is against God's will. Even though it was a culturally reasonable and perfectly fine way of going about things, it, it was even an expected way to go about things. There's something the author tells us that things are not going right. He goes on and says, when she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise 
her mistress. So something is going wrong. And if you've ever been in one of those moments where you feel like you are trying to pursue God's will, you feel like you are trying to be obedient to him, you feel like you are trying to do the right thing and things go wrong, it's always the moment we begin to second guess. Did I mishear God? Did I misunderstand God? Was that not actually his will? And so let's say you leave a job and you think it's the job that God has for you and you're so excited about this new job, great boss, great company, and then something happens and you're laid off. Oh, did I, was that actually God's will for my life? Did I disobey God somewhere? What did I do wrong to mess things up? We see this in, in marriages. You marry someone and it's great and your honeymoon phase and everything's awesome. And then a year, two years in and it's, man, I cannot stand this person. This is hard. This isn't working. Was this really the one God had chosen for me? See, when things in our life begin to go wrong, we begin to second guess and question whether or not we actually followed God's will. And the author is telling us that something is going deeply wrong between Hagar and Sarah. And what it tells us is that, that Hagar began to despise Sarah. Now, the interesting thing about this verse, this last line in this part of the story, is that there's a ton of ambiguity. If you notice, there are actually no names given. They're all very impersonal pronouns. So it's she, 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 her. And what it's saying is that we don't really know if the, when she knew, when Hagar knew she was pregnant, or when Sarah knew Hagar was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. We don't know if the tension in the story is because Hagar is resentful and bitter about what Sarah has done to her, or if Hagar is bitter because of of the the way that Sarah has treated her. And we also don't know if, if Sarah might be bitter that Hagar was able to do what she could not. But what we do know is that there is tension and the relationship begins to fracture. And and that Hagar despises Sarah. And there's other things that are going on in this story that are really important for us to know that clue us in on why things begin to go wrong. Because that's the question. If this was a perfectly reasonable thing for Abraham and Sarah to do, why did things begin to go wrong? Why did things begin to unravel? Why the fracture in the relationship? Why aren't things working out the way that they were supposed to? She conceives, the plan works. This should be a great moment. And instead, things begin to unravel. I think there's several things that are going on, several clues the text gives us to show us why Sarah and Abraham are going against God's will. And the first is this interesting phrase about how Sarah is relating to Abraham with his wife. And it says this, um, if we have that next slide uh, mode, it says that Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave, Hagar, and gave her to her husband. What you have to understand is that phrase is almost a word-for-word reenactment of the fall in the garden, where Eve takes the fruit and gives it to her husband and he consumes it. Sarah takes her slave, gives it to her husband, and he consumes and takes. I mean, it's almost a word-for-word repeat. And so what the author is cluing us in on is that in this moment, Abraham and Sarah are reenacting the fall. They're going against God's will, just like Adam and Eve. They're trying to obtain the promises of God apart from God and going against his will. 
And if that's not bad enough, if that's not a clue enough for us that things are, are going wrong and they're going against God, well, there's actually several other things going on in the story, several hyperlinks to different parts of Exodus and Genesis that show us that what is happening in the story is deeply broken and deeply against God's will. So the first thing we notice about Hagar is we're told her name, but Abraham and Sarah never once refer to her by name. They only refer to her as a slave, the Egyptian slave. Take my slave, have my slave, I will have your slave. And what we see in this moment is that, that Hagar is being dehumanized in the eyes of Abraham and Sarah. That what they are doing in this moment, and as slavery so often does, is they are stripping her of her imago Dei. That this woman has, who has been created in the image of God, as Genesis 1 and 2 tells us, is being removed from that and dehumanized and treated as if she is a means to an end. And so Abraham and Sarah, in their attempt to, to make the promises of God come true, go against God's ethics and his demands for his people. Beyond that, we also see the introduction of, of polygamy into the marriage. And, and now Abraham has two wives. And while the Bible never explicitly condemns polygamy and never just says outright that it's a wrong thing to do, it does say in Genesis 2, which is just the previous few chapters, that when people get married, it's one man and one woman. And every time in Scripture that that dynamic is not done, when any time polygamy is introduced, things always begin to unravel because it is going against God's design for marriage. And beyond that, I think this is one of the most fascinating things that happens in this story, is that Hagar's name has a very specific and particular meaning. The word Hagar means stranger or foreigner. And so throughout the Torah, the first five books of the law, there are numerous verses, in fact, 36 times God tells his people to love the stranger, the foreigner among you. Quite literally, God tells his people, love the Hagar among you as you love yourselves. And so in this moment, Abraham, and Sarah are going against God's will, his ethics, by not loving the Egyptian slave, the foreigner, the Hagar, amongst them. They're rejecting God's will for how other people are supposed to be treated when they're vulnerable and in need. And if none of that is enough to tip us off that what's happening in this story is not okay, is you have to remember Sarah's own story. Because the first thing that happens after God comes to Abraham in Genesis 12 and promises him descendants too numerous to count and promises him a land that they will inherit and dwell in, Abraham takes his wife to Egypt during a famine. And on the way to Egypt, Abraham begins to get scared because his wife is beautiful. And he begins to think she is so beautiful that Pharaoh will take his life to have his wife. And so to save himself, he just sells his wife into slavery so that, that she can be a part of, of Pharaoh's harem to save his own skin. And, and we know from the story that that deeply displeases God. In fact, God sends plagues upon Egypt to free Sarah from this situation. And yet, she does not learn from her own story and repeats that story with Hagar, a slave sold into slavery. 
an Egyptian slave that she quite honestly probably got while they were in Egypt. And so there's clue after clue after clue that Sarah and Abraham are clearly out of step with God's will. That even though God has promised to do these things, the details are vague, and so they take matters into their own hands, which is not the problem, but how they go about doing it is the problem. They reject God's ethics for how the people of God are supposed to live. And things get worse from there. It goes on in verse 5 to say this. Then Sarah said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering, which you've got to feel for my guy Abraham. Like he just did what she told him to do, and now he's like, ah, that was your fault. Why'd you do that? He's like, you, you told me to. But now he's in trouble. <sighs> Thank you. <laughs> you get it. Yeah. He says, I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. You know someone's angry anytime they invoke God's judgment between two people. Like, I might be right, you might be right. We'll just see what God thinks and who he'll smite first, and then we'll know what, right? Like, you know someone's upset when they invoke God's judgment on you. And listen to Abraham's response. He says, your slave is in your hands. And Abraham said, do with her whatever you think best. Now, what's fascinating is any time in the Old Testament that phrase is used, the literal phrase that's used there is do what is right in your own eyes. If we haven't been clued in to what they are doing is against God's will, this is the telltale sign. Because every time in Scripture someone does what is right in their own eyes, the implication is they are not doing what is right in God's eyes. And so Abraham and Sarah are rebelling against God's will and doing what is right in their own eyes. And then it says this, then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled. Now, this word mistreat feels like kind of a, a, a very like weak word. I mean, it kind of feels like if you're walking into King Supers and someone bumps your shoulder, and you're like, ah, why'd, you, why'd you mistreat me? That was kind of rude. But there's so much more depth to this word. What's fascinating is the exact story that precedes this story at the end of Genesis 15 is another time that God comes and promises to Abraham, you will have descendants too numerous to count, and you will have a land for them to dwell in. But he gives this interesting detail that hasn't been a part of any of the promises before then. And what God says is that your descendants for 400 years will be mistreated in another land that they will be enslaved for 400 years before I free them. It's the exact same word. And then in Exodus, when we see Pharaoh enslaving and oppressing and mistreating the Israelites, when he is stealing babies and murdering them, it is the exact same word used. The implication could quite possibly be that Hagar's child and her very life and the child's life are being threatened in this moment. I mean, this is a dark moment in the life of Sarah and Abraham. This is one of the low points, the bottom that they reach. And we have to pause for a moment, and we have to to say a little bit in defense of Sarah, because it's easy to, to, to hear all of those things and think, oh, she's just a villain. She's this awful person. No, Sarah is acting out of her own woundedness and her own hurt. As we know, hurt people hurt people. She's doing what so many of us do. 
when we bear wounds and when we're, we're carrying wounds and when we are hurt from the way life hasn't turned out the way we want is we turn that pain outward and harm other people. And if you've ever experienced infertility and the, the struggle to want a child and not be able to have one, you know the depths of pain that she has walked through through these 10 years and how much more so when it is tied to the promises of God. Sarah is simply acting out of her own hurt. And as we will see, I think there's something to be learned for us in those moments where we feel hurt. And so having experienced Sarah's pain turned outward, Hagar flees into the wilderness. And this is what it says in the next verses. It says, the angel of the Lord found Hagar. And what you need to understand is this is the first moment in Scripture that the angel of the Lord ever appears. The angel of the Lord did not appear to Adam, did not appear to Noah, did not appear to Abraham even in all of the promises. But the first place that the angel of the Lord, God's presence, appears is to an Egyptian slave who's pregnant and running for her life. And so it says that the angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. And it was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarah, she answered. And then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. Again, through modern eyes, this feels like a very, very bad moment. How can a good God send someone back to a situation where her life and potentially the life of her child is being threatened? I mean, what in the world is God doing? That seems to go against everything we know about a good God who loves us. Because in Scripture, it is quite clear that God never ever condones abuse. God never says abuse is okay or that you have to stay in situations of abuse. And I think that is so important for us to hear because I think the church has sometimes had mixed messages about that and told people to stay in situations that were dangerous and that that was God's will for their life. And that is not true. There's more going on here about God calling Hagar back to Sarah and Abraham than meets the eye. The first thing that you need to know is this word submit, it's a weird translation because it is actually the exact same word that is used for how Sarah treats Hagar when she mistreats her. You see, there's a second connotation to that word that's used less often, but it's, it's a prophetic word. God is sending Sarah back to Abraham to say, I see what you have done and it is not okay. And we'll see in a moment how that plays out and what God calls her to do. But even more than that, there's another detail. In the road that the angel of the Lord finds her, it says he finds her on the road to Shur. And what we know about the road to Shur, well, probably most of us don't know. I didn't know this before I read it because I've never been over there and I didn't live in the ancient Near East. But the road to Shur was the way back to Egypt. And what we see in Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and the first books of the Bible, really most of the Old Testament and even on into the New Testament, is Egypt is always a symbol for a place that is bent against God's will. For a place that is in rebellion and rejection of God's will. 
And so you might think of the the image of when the Israelites are freed from Egypt in the Exodus, and they're wandering around the wilderness, and life begins to get hard. What do they do? They say, we should just go back to Egypt. Again and again and again, the people of God, when things are hard, they flee back to Egypt. But God says, that is not my will for you. Don't go back to where I am not. Stay with me because I am with you. And so God calls Hagar not to go to the place that he is not, but to stay with him, and he gives her a promise. And he says, your descendants will be so numerous that they will be too numerous to count. He gives Hagar the exact same promise that he gives to Abraham, one of the most important people in the entire scriptures. An Egyptian slave is given the same exact promise. And there's two things that we got to pull out of this promise. One is God is telling her, you will survive. You and your son will survive, and you will turn into a people too numerous to count. I'm not sending you back to be killed. I'm going back with you, and you will survive. I will ensure that you are delivered. And he goes on, and he says this, uh, uh, this funny promise about how her son will be a wild donkey of a man. Now, to our modern ears, when we read that, we kind of think, did God just call him, like, you know what? Like, is it, is it God cursing him in this moment? I don't understand. A wild donkey? It has no good connotation in our culture. But in that time, a wild donkey was how we might imagine a wild stallion. What God is saying to Hagar in this moment of desperation, and you need to hear this, is that you will be delivered. Your son will be free. One day you will no longer be a slave. He says, I have heard your cries and I will free you and you will live and survive. And notice Hagar's response to God in this moment. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. What you need to understand about Hagar is this is the first and only place in Scripture where someone has the audacity to name God. You can think of all of the other important people in Scripture, Abraham, David, none of them name God. But Hagar has encountered and experienced God in this moment and names him the God who sees me the God who knows what I have endured and who is with me. It's the first and only place in Scripture where God is named. The God who sees. And so stepping back from the story, we have to ask ourselves, what in the world is going on? I mean, what is going on between Abraham and Sarah and their choices and and the way that it affects Hagar? And what is God trying to reveal to us in this moment of Abraham and Sarah's life? And, And if you remember, going back to the beginning of the messages, we talk about discerning God's will for our life. And Abraham and Sarah, they've received promises, but there's no details. And they're trying to figure out how to live in the midst of that tension to see those promises come true. And they're, they're stuck in this tension of not knowing what their responsibility is and what God will show up and do. 
And so they take matters into their own hands, which is not the problem in this story. The, the problem is not what they do, but how they go about doing it. You see, in their effort to see God's promises fulfilled, they go against God's will, reject his ethics, reject the things that he has clearly shown them, and disobey. It's made me think back to when I was a youth pastor, and I had so many conversations with students, and we've got some students in the back of the room, and I'm sure you guys are, are struggling. Yeah, I got a fist pump. You're struggling with, with what to do in your life. And so I would take these students to Qdoba, and we'd have all these conversations about, I don't know who God wants me to date, and I really like this girl, but I don't know if God wants to date me to date her, or I really like this boy, and I'm dating this boy, but I don't know if God wants me to, so maybe God wants me to break up with him. Or we'd have conversations about, I just don't know, like, what God wants me to do with my life. Like, what career has God created me to do? Or, or where does God want me to go to school? And we would have all these conversations, and every single time I disappointed and frustrated them because I would tell them the same thing. I don't think God cares who you date. I don't think God cares where you go to school. I don't think God cares what you do with your life. But I think God deeply, deeply cares about how you date someone. I think God deeply cares about how you go about achieving your goals for your career. That God cares deeply about how you treat other people or how you live at whatever college you end up at. You see, and the truth is it can be kind of fun and, and easy to poke fun at 16-year-olds trying to figure out what God wants them to do, but I don't know that we ever grow out of that, do we? When we wonder what God is doing in our lives and, and we're wondering what direction he has for us and we want him to reveal the big things to us about what job or where we should live or who we should marry or all the big decisions that we have to make and, and they feel so vague and ambiguous that we don't know what to do in those spaces. But, but we reject that God has given us very clear, very clear instructions about how we live in the in-between. What we see in Abraham and Sarah is a rejection when they don't know what God is doing, when they are confused about what God is doing. It does not give us a free pass to do whatever we want. But the people of God still have been given clear direction about how we should live in the in-between. See, I think the story of Abraham and Sarah in this moment, it reveals to us that God gives us the freedom to act in our own stories, but we still must align with his ethical will. And the problem is, is that things go awry because they reject that truth. And I'm not saying that every time something goes wrong in your life, it's because you've done something wrong. We live in a fallen world where bad things happen to us all the time and we experience grief and loss and heartache and it is completely out of our control and just the result that we live in a fallen world. But the distinction is when we disobey God, when we live against his will, when we reject God's will that we know to be true, there will always be consequences. Do you see the difference? You see, what we see in the story of Abraham and Sarah is a rejection and a, a rebellion against God's will that has drastic consequences, which it always does. And the problem is many times when we step outside of God's will, the consequences are borne by those who didn't even have agency or decision or, or a role in the first place. And that's the story of Hagar. Hagar. 
You see, the entire mess of this story comes from Abraham's inaction and Sarah's actions. They, they both passively and actively go against God's will, but Hagar is the collateral damage. There are so many of us in this room today or watching online who have experienced that kind of hardship and suffering where there is nothing, nothing that you could have done to change your circumstances or what has happened in your life. That, that some of us that bear burdens and wounds from the time that we were children because of things that have been done to us, things that have gone against God's will. There are some of us that carry scars and wounds that, that we believe no one knows about, no one has seen, and no one even knows happened to us. And what this story tells us is that God has seen every single one of your stories. That God knows what has been done against you. God knows the hardship, the wounds, the suffering, and the pain that you have endured. That he sees and that he has heard and that he cares and just like Hagar, he delivers and he redeems. See, one of the beautiful things about this story is that when Hagar receives this promise from God, God tells her to name her son Ishmael, which means God hears. See, he shows up in Hagar's life and, and she says, you are the God who has seen me and you are the God who has heard of my trauma and my hardship and my suffering and my pain. But what's fascinating is that Hagar does not name Ishmael. She goes back to Abraham and Sarah and Abraham names Ishmael the God who sees. You see, because part of the redemptive story of what God is doing in this moment is, is he is saying very specifically to Abraham, I have seen and I have heard what you and Sarah have done. And it is not okay. God confronts them. And, and from that point on, Abraham changes in the story. In fact, a few chapters later, he will beg God to let Ishmael be his inherited son, the, the son that the promises will be fulfilled through. And God has different plans, and we'll talk about that next week. But, but Abraham has changed so much through this experience that he begs God to make Ishmael the one who the promises will be fulfilled through. See, he's seen and he has heard and God confronts and changes because the beauty of these stories of people failing to live according to God's will again and again and again is that even whether it's, it's someone who has harmed you or you have caused the harm, God can redeem all things. That no matter what we have done or what has been done to us, it is not above or beyond God's redemption. And a beautiful, beautiful detail about this story is that there's another story very similar and very like it in the New Testament where just like Hagar is met by God at a well, Jesus meets a woman by a well. And he changes her life and he sees her and she is redeemed and her story of brokenness and abuse is changed. But do you know what she says about Jesus? She says, come and see the one who has seen me as I am. God is the same today as he was to Hagar and to the unnamed woman at the well. God sees your stories. And none of our stories are too broken for his redemption.
That is the story of Hagar and Sarah and Abraham. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, I pray for each and every one of us in this room this morning or, or whether they are joining us online. God, I know there are so many people here who are wondering what your will is for them, that are wrestling with decisions big and small, wondering where you will show up and what you will do. God, I pray that even in the lack of clarity, even in the ambiguity, that God, you would give us the strength to remain faithful in the unknown. That, that where you have given clear direction, we would follow your will. God, I know it, it is probably safe to say that everyone in this room bears wounds and scars, pain and suffering and heartache from things that have been done to them. That God, this might be the first time that they have ever known that you see those things, that you know those things, that those things have not gone unseen or unheard. God, I pray that this story, this beautiful story of how you appear to us, how you call us by name, God, I pray that that would be a balm for our souls. That God, we would know you as the God who sees and hears and redeems. God, we know that ultimately that healing comes through the power of the cross and through Jesus. And we thank you that our stories do not end in the pain that we have endured, but in the cross that redeems all things. Thank you for being faithful to us, even from the very beginning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.